everybody were to go vegan altogether, no more animal source foods whatsoever, that would reduce greenhouse gases in the United States by 2.6%. The total greenhouse gas footprint of all livestock in the United States is 4%. That's 4% of total greenhouse gases. Okay. So I don't mean to deflect away from livestock. I just want to say, yes, while eating animal source food has an impact on climate, uh, it is oftentimes overblown and uh, in many cases a smokescreen. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Welcome everybody back to the Live Damn Well podcast. Today I have a special guest for you, Dr. Frank Mitloner. If you guys haven't heard of him, he's actually a pretty big figure, bigger than I would have imagined in the field of, uh, you know, environmental and animal science. Uh, his Twitter handle shows you just that. He's called the GHG Guru, which I'm pretty sure stands for Greenhouse Gas Guru, um, which would make a lot of sense given that's basically one of the biggest core themes of this entire episode. Now, before we get into it, I wanted to mention a few things. First, if you enjoy the podcast, please buy me a coffee. I'd really appreciate a nice coffee, maybe with some almond or coconut milk. I can't do dairy because it gives me acne. Second note, Thrive Market is the sponsor of this episode. If you haven't heard of Thrive Market, you haven't been listening to this podcast enough, Thrive Market is on a mission to make healthier eating more accessible and more affordable to everyone. It's basically like a Whole Foods, except it delivers to your door and it's really a fraction of the price that you'd get uh, you know, in a regular health food store near you. So I highly, highly recommend them. If you use my link, you'll get 40% off of your first order and a free gift when you join Thrive Market. You can join for a year or you can join for a month and you can even get a refund within that month period if you don't like Thrive Market. So the links to both of those will be in the description. And finally, if you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed other episodes in the past, please be sure to rate and review this podcast on iTunes and share it with your loved ones. Thank you and let's get into it. Today I have with me Dr. Frank Mitloner, a professor and air quality specialist in cooperative extension in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. Dr. Mitloner received his master's degree in animal sciences and agricultural engineering, his PhD in animal science, and was the chairman of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. Dr. Mitloner has authored or co-authored over 100 studies and is committed to helping our global community understand the environmental and human health impacts of livestock so that we can make informed decisions about the foods that we eat, all while reducing our environmental impact. Dr. Mitloner, it's a pleasure to interview you. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. 
Thank you for having me. So I thought I would start with uh, how do we even measure the resource used by animals and plants? Because this is something that I think uh, is part of the nuance that is lost when you hear either, you know, pro beef, like carnivore diet zealots, or you hear like the vegan side, right? You hear this nuance lost and like, what are we actually talking about when we, when we think of what we're measuring? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> a very multifaceted question. So uh, you mentioned that I chaired a um, United Nations FAO committee um, a few years ago. And the goal of that committee, uh, with hundreds of scientists serving on it, was to develop a, a list of guidelines on how to measure the environmental footprint of livestock. Because it's not just climate. Everybody talks about climate right now, but it's also surface water, groundwater, air quality, soil impacts, and so on. And um, for all of these different uh, media, there are many different approaches as to how you measure impact. And so to cut through all of this um, murkiness and really get some clarity, uh, we developed uh, guidelines for all these different environmental variables, as I said. And so there's no short answer to your question other than it's very complex. Um, there are now gold standard kind of techniques, technologies to do it. And um, people actually need to follow them. What would you say are the ones that are focused on the most, like whether it be, you know, gas emissions or whether it be like water use? Are those some of the main ones? I would say currently the main focus is on greenhouse gases causing climate change because livestock does emit a lot of methane. Mm -hmm. And so the main focus, uh, particularly of those people who are critical to livestock is centered around methane. Got it. Got it. And we'll dive much more into uh, methane pretty soon here. Um, but before we do that, I want to kind of frame this episode uh, based off of some plant-based arguments that I hear. Full disclosure, I, I, you know, people that listen to this podcast know that I am more animal-based. I tend to lean more towards that way. So that's my bias. I'm uh, just putting it out there. And I want to begin with a piece um, that was actually written about you on a magazine called Undark, which I just saw today, which uh, seems to be more of a plant-based leaning website. Um, and their article is a good starting point for this. So let's start with their first claim, which is that there is a much greater greenhouse gas emission in animal, especially beef agriculture than plant agriculture. And they cite our world in data to get those numbers. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's no question. That's true. Um, yeah. Because you skip a trophic level if you uh, forego animal source foods, because, uh, you know, animals eat the plants and then we eat the animals. And so that's an entire trophic level. So it's okay. a no brainer that animal source food has a greater environmental footprint. The question is not whether or not that's the case, but the question is how much of really our impact on climate a country like the United States is caused by what we eat. So for example, whether or not you eat a burger, a burger a week, or we're not talking about, you know, eating it every day. I mean, who does? But um, whether you forego eating a burger a week and everybody else in this country doing uh, the same, whether that has a measurable impact on climate, that kind of thing is a question. And, um, and here I would say, yes, it does but the impact is so small that it's very hard to quantify it. Even if as a nation, everybody, 330 million Americans would were to forego all animal source foods one day a week, 
such as a meatless Monday would, um, would uh, ask us to do, uh, then we would reduce our carbon footprint by 0.3%. Now you can say, well, that's not nothing, it's something, and it is something. But it's, it's certainly not something that is even close to the main culprit um, of human activity on climate, which is the use of fossil fuel, which is responsible for 80%, 8-0. So I don't mean to deflect away from livestock. I just want to say, Yes, while eating animal source food has an impact on climate, uh, it is oftentimes overblown and uh, in many cases a smokescreen. So if everyone in the United States was to say, all right, let's all go vegan, let's all go plant-based, it would have a very, very minimal impact on, uh, is it global warming? Is that what is being measured? Yeah, so I just cited the number 0.3% reduction of greenhouse gases for Meatless Monday, okay? If everybody were to go vegan altogether, no more animal source foods whatsoever, that would reduce greenhouse gases in the United States by 2.6%. Um, the total uh, greenhouse gas footprint of all livestock in the United States is 4%. That's 4% of total greenhouse gases, okay? Just to give you a general uh, number so that you know we have something as a reference point. Okay, okay. And, and does this data take into account um, the fact that in animal agriculture, I know in regenerative agriculture, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, there's, you know, some carbon fixation that goes back in because of the cows actually make, allow that to happen, right? So some of them will actually be carbon neutral or even like negative. It does not take that into consideration. It, doesn't take it only okay. takes emissions into consideration, not, uh, so, not uh, so-called sinks. Sinks are um, processes that can reduce greenhouse gases. For example, Soils and plants are important sinks for greenhouse gases. Approximately a third of human caused carbon, you know, a third of the carbon human activity puts into the air gets stored in our soils. But it's important that we then leave those soils alone and don't plow them again, because otherwise we would release that carbon back into the atmosphere. The process I just referred to is called soil carbon sequestration. It's not um, included in this EPA inventory figure of 4% that I mentioned before. Yeah, so that, that seems to be like a pretty misleading um, number, you know, especially like if you look at popular films like Cowspiracy and you look at other kind of, um, I guess, vegan films where, where they cite these huge, huge numbers that, uh, yeah. you know, are, yeah. Well, don't get me going on this, you know, I mean, <laughs> the thing, the thing is, uh, I understand these people are well-meaning, oftentimes, unfortunately, uh, ill-informed. Um, but the folks around uh, Cowspiracy have put really, really misleading stuff out. And I have confronted them directly. And since uh, I have done so, they have changed some of their figures. Okay, That 51% that they cited in Cowspiracy, as that being the impact of livestock on climate, is grossly misleading. Okay, And the problem why I think that this kind of stuff is dangerous, mm -hmm. not just bad, not just not scientific, but dangerous, is because we are taking the focus away from where it ought to be, which is the use of fossil fuels. And that is the use of um, uh, transportation vehicles, the use of power plants, the use of everything that burns oil, coal, and gas. Okay, That is what causes 80% of our greenhouse gases. Yes, we can also make improvements on the food side, uh, particularly uh, at the farmer level, but we must not take we must not take away the focus from where the focus is supposed to be. 
Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that because um, I'm a health coach. And so with my clients, I, I kind of, I talk to them in terms of different healthy habits as big rocks and small rocks, right? You can move the big rocks and that'll give you the biggest bang for your buck. That's your sleep. That's your diet. That's your exercise. That's your stress management. That's your social connections, right? Those are the big things that'll have the biggest bang for your buck. And it seems to be pretty analogous, right? To fossil fuels being, being those big rocks, right? That you need to move those out of the way because we're focusing on this small, uh, you know, cattle or, or livestock, basically agriculture that that's going to have a very minimal impact, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good analogy, actually, because uh, there are these large rocks and the large rocks on the climate side are um, anything that uses oil, coal and gas. Uh, and that can be the transportation sector, can be power production and use uh, the cement industry is a very significant uh, portion. Um, you know, these are the big rocks and um, uh, agriculture is a rock. It is a big rock too, but we need to eat. We must eat. Okay, that's not luxury. We must eat. And um, whether or not some people, some of your listeners like to see that the majority of the population likes to consume animal source foods, it is a fact. Okay, we don't live in some uh, country where where people be told what to eat or who to vote for or who to uh, fall in love with or, you know, other personal choices. These are personal choices that are based on ethics and religion and preference and so forth. So I am very, very critical uh, when I hear people saying, oh, from a logical perspective, we should eat uh, this and that and the other and not whatever, because there are so many aspects that guide our our choices in this field. And it's really nobody else's business. I mean, it is not different from, from saying, everybody has the right to choose their own religion. Everybody has the right to choose their own partner. Everybody has the right to choose what they eat and drink. I mean, that is a personal choice in life. And I don't think anybody wants that to be taken away. Right, absolutely. And I think, you know, going off of what you said about this being not only misinformation, but dangerous misinformation, is that there is a clear difference. And I had um, uh, Dr. Peter Ballerset on the podcast earlier, right? He talked about uh, the differences in protein quality between, you know, an animal sourced protein and a plant-based protein. And it's just, it's really not comparable, right? When you look at them in terms of nutrition, this is also can be quite a dangerous thing because not only is meat specifically like ruminant meat like lamb and and uh and and cows right those are those are great sources of the b vitamins of so many different fat soluble vitamins and including the the part about yeah, increased digestibility of those proteins and much more complete proteins you just can't compare the two and if you're really going to force people in one direction and say, you have to be vegan, otherwise you're killing the planet and you're a terrible person and all these other things, right? That's just not helpful for anyone and it can be dangerous. Yeah, you know, what I'm most concerned about is um, if, if people were to say, well, I would have to pay more for my meat, uh, I, could, I could deal with that, okay? I, I have a good job, I could deal with that. But what I'm most concerned about is those people in society um, that are the poorest, um, they don't have a calorie issue by and large, okay? Many of the poorest people in our country are not undernourished with respect to being thin and starving to death or starving Mm. every day. They normally have enough calories. 
but not enough nutrients. They are calorie rich, but nutrient poor. And the most nutrient rich food that we know of are most animal source foods. And if you now go ahead like New York or other places and say, we now have a meatless whatever Monday or Friday or so, then you send these kids back uh, to school on a day that's adjacent to the weekend where they didn't have nutrient dense food because they were at home. And then you expose them to a situation where three, four days of the week, they don't have nutrient dense food. And that is then the case during the time when they most need it, namely during childhood. And that is really inappropriate in my opinion. Anybody were to take that away, that choice away from my kids, I would not be happy. I can assure you that much. No, it's, it's um, I mean, I, I hesitate to say something as severe as like a crime, but it, it seems to be right because there are studies now coming out, which shows that a vegan diet remodels the metabolism of young kids, right? And it, it can change the way that their brain develops. It can change the way that their bodies develop if they're not getting some of those critical nutrients that you mainly get in animal food. So I totally agree with your point. Although many of these vegans are well-intentioned, they are misinformed and they are, I think, leading us in a kind of a wrong direction. You know, I have to say, I strongly feel that everybody has a choice to choose what they want to eat. Okay. And I have absolutely no beef with people saying I'm eating this or that, you know, vegan or carnivore or anything between, right. as, as I said before, I think that's a personal choice. Um, where I get off board is when certain people who are in an extreme uh, uh, camp make these decisions about vulnerable parts of the population, the youngest and the oldest. That's when I really have a problem with it, okay? Yep. Uh, they have specific nutritional needs, particularly around uh, essential amino acids, uh, as well as all different kinds of other essential nutrients, such as uh, iron and B vitamins and calcium and so on. And not just those nutrients, but these nutrients in a, in a package that's particularly um, digestible and therefore bioavailable to our, uh, to our needs. And so if anybody takes that away from those who need it the most, then uh, I have a major issue with that. Shifting away from um, the bioavailability aspect of this, um, this article that I mentioned from Undark also criticizes how emissions are measured. It specifically criticizes this new scale that you and certain co-authors are, are advocating for called the uh, GWP star, which would, according to them, would make methane emissions less problematic for global warming. So, so tell me about this scale and the origins of it. Well, I have to say that the authors of this article are painfully uninformed about how greenhouse gases warm the planet. GWP star is the name of this. Uh, it's called a matrix, a new matrix. Uh, what it does is it uh, characterizes the actual warming impact of a gas such as methane. And it actually uses the old matrix GWP 100 in it. The new unit GWP star uses the old unit GWP 100, but puts that into a perspective by using the GWP 100 variables and the changes over time, because that's really what is important. If you wanna know whether or not warming occurs or cooling occurs or so, 
And that means you need to know different time points. Okay, so if you want to know, is it warmer today or cooler today than yesterday or last week, mm -hmm. then you need to know what was the temperature last week and yesterday <laughs> and today. And then you can say whether it was warmer or not, right? Right. If you only have today's temperature, you don't know if it was if it's warmer today than it was yesterday or last week. You cannot. So that's what GWP star does. Okay, it looks at methane concentrations in the air at different time points and then tells you whether or not the change over time has been in a way that it went up, down, or stayed constant. That's what GWP star does. So the authors of this Undark article are really, I'm sorry to say that, and I'm critical now, but pretty clueless in this field. Now, something else I want to say is that the people who came up with this GWP star were senior authors of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. They mentioned years ago that the old unit GWP 100 is very inaccurate when you have constant emissions of a certain source. Let's say the cattle herd in the United States were constant in numbers over the last 20, 30, 40 years, okay? Always about 100 million cattle. Then these constant cattle herds produce pretty much constant amounts of methane. And methane has something very special to it, namely that it's not just produced, but it's also naturally destroyed. And this old unit does not take the destruction of methane into consideration. It acts as if this gas were just produced but not destroyed. And so because of that, because of the omission of the fact that methane is also destroyed, this old unit GWP100 overblows constant sources of methane by a factor of four, okay? The authors of GWP star had told the world that for years now. And last August, last August, the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change in their AR6 report acknowledged that and said in writing that, yes, if you use the old unit, you're overblowing the warming impact of constant sources by a factor of three to four. For those of your listeners who don't believe me, AR6 report, page 123. So those people at Undark and others, they should read the IPCC in order to get confirmation on that. And what are some other common myths that you hear surrounding um, cattle and livestock emissions and, and resource depletion? Well, I oftentimes hear, for example, that um, we should forgo eating animals and um, instead eat animals, uh, plants directly because uh, that would save a lot of land. Okay? Mm. So we could use the land that we currently use for livestock for other purposes. Um, that's a urban myth as well, because uh, approximately two thirds of all agricultural land, both in the world and also here in the United States, two thirds of all agricultural land is the so-called marginal agricultural land. It's mm -hmm. called marginal because you cannot grow crops there, but what grows there is cellulose. In other words, grasses, and the only animals that can, that can digest that cellulose and convert it into something that then becomes useful for our nutrition, are ruminants, meaning cattle, sheep, goats. They can eat cellulose and convert it uh, into volatile fatty acids. Eventually, it becomes meat and milk. So without ruminant livestock, we could not make use of two-thirds of all agricultural land. The remainder one-third of all agricultural land is arable land, and that's where you can grow crops. So I think that's a, that's a very common 
argument uh, as to why we should change what we but all of that really is kind of a childish discussion if you think about it i mean it is not um it is just not the case that humans uh, make the decision as to what they eat based on um, what is the best environmental argument one way or another, right? right? When you go to the supermarket or any of your peers, when you go to the supermarket, do you stand in front of all the shelves thinking about, um, you know, which one has the lowest water footprint, the lowest greenhouse gas footprint, the best animal welfare, or, um, you know, which of those production processes are the best for agricultural workers and, uh, and so on and so on. I don't think so. No. I mean, some people claim they do that, but, and maybe they do so for, for a short while, but that is not what guides them uh, through, throughout their lives. I think that we have to acknowledge that people have different food preferences for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And yes, we can make improvements and we should always improve processes around food production, just like we make uh, advantage, uh, advances in how we build cars and trains and buildings and so on. We should make our food as sustainable as possible. Okay? Work with our farmers to make that happen um, and reduce the environmental footprint to the greatest extent possible. But in my opinion, uh, this whole topic is oftentimes just used in order to discourage people from eating animal source foods, because prior to using the climate argument, the same people mm -hmm. who argue that way uh, today used an animal welfare or an animal rights or some other um, argument before. Um, the arguments have changed, but their uh, intent remains the same, which is to end animal agriculture. And that's where they are a very small minority and actually a tiny minority uh, that, and I find that interesting too, uh, in their vast majority, uh, go back to eating a more omnivore diet after about a year. About 80% plus stay vegetarian and vegan for about a year, and then they revert back. And these are numbers that come from that particular area of, uh, of food preference. Um, so to me, uh, if that were a gold standard we should all aspire to, then people would stick to it and stick to it forever. Most of them don't. Right, right. Yeah, I've heard those similar statistics as well. Regarding water expenses, um, which is something that I, I briefly mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, which is yeah. something that oftentimes you just hear this kind of very narrow-minded approach to um, sustainable eating, which, it, which oftentimes that means that water consumption is neglected. Um, mm -hmm. So how do water expenses play into this conversation of sustainable eating? Yeah, water is, uh, is a big, big topic, uh, particularly here in the West where I live. Um, we, have, we have water scarcity and there's just no question around it. And some food items are much thirstier than, than others. For example, um, it takes about two gallons of water to grow one single walnut, about a gallon per almond nut individual nut. Okay? So it takes uh, also quite some water to produce uh, milk and meat and so on. Um, and so we do have to acknowledge that and we do have to work on ways to making our agricultural uh, goods as <clears throat> to growing them as efficiently on the water side as possible. 
Um, and we have made huge improvements, for example, by doing drip, drip irrigation, you know, where you have lands uh, under, underground that only give as much water as the plant needs to grow. You have less evaporation happening and so on. What happens uh, very often on the livestock side is that um, numbers are put out that are just horrendously high, okay, horrendously high. Years ago, even though I'm not into water research, I talked to colleagues who are, and, um, and they told me, well, what people are counting is all the water that is used to grow all the feed these animals eat. And I said, yeah, okay, but let's say a beef animal eats, a beef animal is at least two thirds of its life on pasture. Mm -hmm. okay? All beef animals that we ever consume, even if they're corn finished, they spend the first two thirds of their lives on pasture. And so obviously pastures are not irrigated. So does that mean that the people who make these calculations count rainwater? And the answer was absolutely, yes, they do. I said, but the rain would fall onto that land no matter what. The rain would fall on that land no matter what, whether there's a cow on there or not, the rain would fall there. And if the cow now eats some of that forage that grew on that land, then that water will go in in form of the feed, but a few hours later, it'll be excreted again. So it's not that it magically disappears because the cow has, has eaten it and uh, therefore internalized it for a couple hours. Um, but, but that's the kind of math people do, okay? And that's, uh, in my opinion, uh, you know, that's a problem. So there's blue water, there's gray water, and there's green water. Blue water is tap water. And that's what we have really have to make sure we don't waste. But uh, green water is rainwater, and that water will fall no matter whether people are there or not there, whether cows are there or not, and so on. Yeah, you know, when I was looking through some of your other interviews, this concept of green water was just, was kind of, it's kind of mind blowing that that gets lost in translation sometimes um, and is not something that is uh, taken into account. Um, because yeah, I think I think you mentioned in a previous video that it was you know ninety four percent of the water requirements needed to actually grow a lot of these cattle and livestock. So that's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's the vast majority for sure. Yeah. Now regarding uh, animal feedlots versus grass fed, I know this is something that I think you have a very interesting perspective on. What are your thoughts on the differences in the environmental impact of, of both of those? Yeah. So I don't. Um... I don't want to come across as, as saying the one is good, the other one is bad, but uh, the notion that um, a production star that includes a feedlot is inherently worse for climate, for example, uh, that is just flawed. And here's the reason why. Mm -hmm. What a feedlot does, so first of all, for those of your listeners who don't really know the difference, um, there's a very small percentage of beef in the United States that is finished on pasture. Okay, that's grass finished. The vast majority of beef that we consume in the United States is corn finished. And what is the difference? The difference is that a grass finished animal lives about 26 to 30 months of age. So approximately two and a half, three years. And then is slaughtered. Um, a corn finished animal also lives the majority of its life on pasture but it's slaughtered when it's around 14 to 16 months of age. So one and a half years of age approximately. Um, so first uh, they all live with their mom on pasture in a cow calf operation. And then 
um, the grass-finished animals stay there. The corn-finished animals eventually, for the last four to six months of their lives, go into feedlot, where they are fed something else, namely a so-called concentrate-rich diet, which is a corn-rich diet. Uh, well, corn or, or distillers grains or other uh, concentrate feeds. Um, so, but they stay in there in the feedlot for four months, okay, approximately. Um, while they're in a the feedlot, they are producing the smallest amount of greenhouse gases of their entire life. And the reason is that the microbes in their stomach system, in their rumen that produces the methane, those microbes require roughage in the diet. In the diet. Uh, another word for roughage is fiber. The more fiber, the more methane is produced. Uh, these methane uh, producing microbes, also called methanogens, require uh, fiber in the diet, roughage in the diet to produce methane gas. In a feedlot, only 10 to 15% of the diet is roughage. On pasture, almost all of it is roughage. So um, yes, it's true, of course, a feedlot finished animal um, will need feed that is grown someplace else, um, maybe corn or distillers grains or so, and that feed needs to be shipped. But even if you include all of those um, emission sources in a so-called life cycle assessment, which accounts for the entire life cycle of let's say grass finished versus beef uh, versus corn finished animal, um, the corn finished animal actually has a lower and not higher carbon footprint. Um, so that's not to say that there is nothing uh, wrong with feedlot systems. There, there are people who find it objectionable that animals are not on pasture. They don't like to see cattle in a, a dirt floor corral. They just don't like it. Mm -hmm. And they, if you take the right angle and so on in a feedlot, then you can take a shot of animals that are cramped. But the average space per beef animal in a feedlot is between 130 to 150 square feet. Okay, that's the average speed, uh, average space each animal has. The reason why you see them cramped is because they're herd animals, okay? They will bunch up. They do not want to be all spread out nice and even. Um, that's what people think they should do, but that's not what they want to do. They are prey animals and they bunch up. That's what they do. So the discussion is multifaceted. Okay, in many, many ways. I can talk to you for a long time just about the comparison of grass finished versus corn finished. Um, but the fact remains, the vast majority of people, of consumers who consume beef do prefer the taste of the corn finish because it leads to a different kind of fat char characteristic. Um, and it is a much um, younger product. Okay, so it's 14 to 16 months for corn finished versus 26 to 30 months for grass finished. So that has an impact on, uh, on tenderness of the meat. Okay, so we left off on talking about the impact of animal feedlots versus grass fed. And I have to say that, you know, at the beginning, when I first started getting into all this health stuff, I thought, no way. It's, I mean, grass fed is way better for everything. It's better for nutrition. It's better for, um, and I was, I, I mean, I feel like I was one of those people that was scaremongering of, of feedlots. But now that I've seen some of your work, I've talked to, um, you know, Dr. Peter Ballerstead and others, uh, it seems to be that this kind of fear surrounding um, animal feedlots is kind of exaggerated. Yeah, it's a, I think it is largely an emotional issue. Okay, So um, it is 
the feedlots are designed, have been designed really to maximize efficiencies. Um, but what comes with efficiencies is environmental footprint. Okay, if you improve efficiencies, then uh, that comes comes along with an improvement of environmental footprint. And so, uh, and that improved efficiency has everything to do with you are shortening the lifespan of those animals drastically. I mean, drastically, but you arrive at a product that the consumer prefers. Um, and at the end of the day, that's what sells the product. Okay, So mm -hmm. when people decide, do I have beef tonight or do I have pork tonight or chicken, um, then it's taste that rules. And if people say, I really like that product and I like to barbecue it or so, then that's the way it goes. And the farmers respond to the signals that the market sends. Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it is not the most romantic uh, image, you know, the image of a feedlot. I understand that. And um, the animal agricultural sector has uh, over years and years uh, marketed beef always with animals in a pastoral uh, environment. And so people have that in their head that that's the way it should be. And that's the only way it should be. But with their pocketbook, they decide differently. With their pocketbook, they decide differently, okay? Because they have figured out what it is that they prefer, normally taste rules and, uh, and price rules too, because I mean, uh, grass finished beef is more expensive. If you uh, consider that it's a small niche market, uh, it is more expensive in many, in many right. cases. And so people are cost sensitive and they are very much into, um, into, knowing and then following uh, their taste patterns. And to finish off here, I know a large part of your work now is uh, in, in reducing the environmental impact and also making food more sustainable. So, you know, what are some of the steps that, uh, you know, you're currently taking and researching to, to do that? So the center of my research is around limiting the environmental footprint and particularly the air impact of livestock. And so I find ways to minimize ammonia, minimize greenhouse gases, minimize um, other air issues around livestock. And um, what's really great is that um, a gas like methane, we already talked about methane is kind of different compared to other gases. It has a very short lifespan. And um, because of its short lifespan, a unique um, angle with respect to being a lever in reducing our impact on climate. Um, if you reduce methane, you have an instantaneous impact on climate. And uh, if you reduce methane strongly, 30, 40%, then you can get an industry to a point where it becomes climate neutral because a strong reduction of methane equals a strong reduction of warming. And if this methane reduction is strong enough, it can offset other greenhouse gases from the same sector, such as nitrous oxide and CO2, getting this industry to a point where they become climate neutral. Okay? And this is a goal that all industries, particularly in Europe right now, are striving for uh, becoming climate neutral and entire countries want to become climate neutral. Mm -hmm. And the Paris Climate Accord is all about that, right? Uh, limiting our impact on warming uh, such that we don't exceed a two degree centigrade additional warming. So um, my goal is to do what we need to do on the livestock side to achieve strong methane reductions. Here in California, we have achieved about 
30% reduction, 30 30% reduction of methane, which is nothing short of sensational, through the use of public-private partnerships. Uh, the state incentivizing reductions of methane on farms and working hand-in-hand -hand with farmers to achieve those reductions because they have such a great punch on, um, on, on, on the climate side. And so that makes me very hopeful, it makes me very bullish, no pun intended, um, but it does make me very bullish because I can see that our farmers can be part of a climate solution. And this is not some greenwashing, the use of a unit like GWP star, not some kind of creative accounting, but instead it's the use of the best science that we know of to help farmers do their share in making our climate better and our environment more sustainable. Uh, now, what are the some of the practical strategies that you've used to actually make that happen? Like, I know I've I've uh, read into Joel Salatin's work, and uh, I think a large part of what he advocates for is regenerative agriculture. Is that the way forward, or is it some other types of um, strategies? So, regenerative agriculture is not my area of emphasis. Okay, and I I don't know enough uh, about it with respect to having seen real research uh, results. But what it largely centers around is improving soil health. Okay, that's largely what this is about, uh, to preserve soil as what it is, namely a very large sink of greenhouse gases and make it even a larger sink. Um, and what exactly the impacts of that, uh, what, what exactly those impacts are uh, remains to be seen, has not been um, conclusively um, quantified. But um, reductions of methane, for example, mm -hmm. uh, are studied and already implemented extensively. So for example, here at UC Davis in my department, Animal Science, we've done dozens of studies on feed additives. Mm -hmm. Additives uh, added to the diet of animals that drastically reduce enteric methane, enteric methane being the methane that's belched out uh, by these ruminants. <clears throat> we have found that reductions anywhere between 10 to 50, 50% are possible uh, for beef and dairy cattle, for sheep and goats. Um, that's, on the, that's on the enteric side. The manure of those animals also produces methane. And here we have found that if you cover the lagoon where the manure is stored on dairies, if you cover that waste storage area, um, then the gas that normally would go into the air is, is captured and it's called biogas. Okay, that's a mixture of various gases. And 60% um, of that biogas is methane, six zero. 60% of that biogas is methane. These farmers now capture that biogas, clean it up and make it into transportation fuels for semi-trucks and buses called renewable natural gas, RNG. <clears throat> This pathway of dairy biogas from these lagoons, this pathway of dairy biogas converted into this renewable natural gas, this transportation fuel, is considered by the state of California as the most carbon negative fuel type there is. And that's a really good thing. Carbon negative means it's most dissimilar to fossil fuels, okay? So it's the, the greenest fuel type there is. And as a result, the state is paying so-called low carbon fuel standard credits, low carbon fuel standard credits to farmers that do that. And these low carbon fuel standard credits are so high that we have a new gold rush in the state of California, namely one of dairy farmers covering their lagoons, converting biogas into transportation fuels 
And these transportation fuels are then going into trucks, buses, replacing diesel. And so this has reduced this alone, this one technology alone has reduced methane from California dairies by 25%. And it just started a few years ago. This is nothing short of sensational. That's incredible. I, I never heard of that before. Yeah. So, but wow. that's the way it is. The goal of the state of California is to reduce methane by 40%, for zero. Uh, our dairy sector is already over halfway there with 25%. And so I'm very optimistic uh, when I, I'm very optimistic in my belief that uh, this sector and other livestock sectors will achieve these climate goals. And uh, to finish off here, where can people find out more about you and your work? So I'm the director of the CLEAR Center, C-L-E-A-R, CLEAR Center here at UC Davis. And if you want to read up more, blogs, explainers, uh, YouTube videos, and so on, you find it on the center's webpage, which is clear.ucdavis.edu. And I'm also on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at ghgguru. Awesome. I'll be linking to those in the show notes. I really appreciate your time. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.